This morning, we're continuing our series on the Sermon on the Mount, and this is the most foundational set of teachings that Jesus gave to the church. It it shaped the early church more than any other uh, thing that Jesus said. In fact, early Christians would memorize the Sermon on the Mount as a part of their process before their baptism. It was that impactful and that influential. And today we get to the place where Jesus talks about money and possessions. Uh, so that's what we're going to talk about today. And if you're thinking to yourself, wow, that's like a really awkward Mother's Day sermon to talk about money and possessions. Yeah, I don't disagree with you, uh, but I would also have you consider that there's never a Sunday in which a pastor in a church context could talk about money and it not be somewhat awkward, right? And part of that is because if you grew up in church, you've been around, you know, Christians, or you've ever watched a televangelist, there is a little bit of this feeling that pastors are after your money, that churches just want your money. This is something that is a real barrier for people. Maybe you're here today and you haven't been in church in a while, and that's actually your barrier. And I just want to say to you, that barrier exists not without cause. There are some stories, there are some uh, experiences that you've had or you've seen uh, like this one, for example, uh, Creflo Dollar, at one point, a uh, t- famous televangelist, tried, tried to raise $65 million for a private jet. And, you know, his explanation was, well, I can take the gospel to the ends of the earth and blah, blah, blah. But the whole time people were like, yeah, 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 that's, that's not what you're going to use it for. The project failed, but nonetheless, we've seen this type of stuff and it just feels dirty. It feels dirty because it is dirty, Right? So that's one reason why we get a little bit antsy when we talk about money in church. Another reason, this recently came up, uh, somebody started an Instagram account called Preachers and Sneakers. And in a matter of days, this uh, Instagram account exploded with followers, basically calling out celebrity pastors for high-end sneakers and clothing items and on and on and on. You know, like, this pastor is wearing $700 sneakers and, you know, so... My point is, we could go on and on and on, but we've all seen this stuff, haven't we? You don't have to be in church to witness kind of the abuse and the misuse and people fleecing the flock of God, if you will, just to get financial gain. And yet, despite all of that reality, Jesus talked about money almost constantly. Almost constantly. Why is that? Well, I'll tell you in just a minute, but just think about the sheer volume of times Jesus talks about money. Out of his 38 parables, 16 of them are about money and possessions. 16 of them. In the Gospels, about one out of every 10 verses, that's 288 verses in all, deal directly with the subject of money. And the Bible as a whole, this is fascinating to me, uh, has about 500 verses on prayer. Prayer's kind of a big deal, right? If you're a Christian, we can agree prayer's a big deal, part of the faith. 500 verses on prayer. Less than 500 verses on faith. Is faith important? Yeah, it's kind of a foundational part of what it is to be a a believer. But more than 2,000 verses on money and possessions, right? You think about that, the sheer amount of verses on prayer and faith, but then money and possessions, there's an overwhelming amount of passages on money and possessions. He talks about money all the time, almost constantly. And listen, it's never to get rich himself, and it's never to use people as a sugar daddy. So why is it that Jesus talks about money all the time? Well, let me give you two reasons real quick from uh, the very teachings of Jesus in Matthew chapter 6. The first reason is money actually reveals what we value. It reveals what we value. Look, Look at this in Matthew 6 verse 21. For where your treasure is, Jesus says this, 
there your heart will be also. Uh, You want to know where your heart is, follow the money trail, and you'll find your heart. Uh, Do you guys remember those commercials back in the day? I was a a kid when these were on TV, but the extendable grabbers. And it would always picture like an elderly person trying to grab like a can of peaches off a really high shelf or something, right? And, And they had the, you know, I can't reach it. So they'd use the extendable grabber and they'd reach for it. That's what money is. Imagine an extendable grabber attached to your heart and everything that your heart wants, it just can reach out and grab. That's what money is to us. It shows what we value. You might think, well, it's just like paper and ink. What's the big deal? Well, here's the big deal. John Piper says money is some kind of currency. It might be paper or metal or in other cultures, perhaps stones or in our culture, electronic records. But listen, this currency functions as a culturally defined representation of quantities of value so that the currency can be used to pursue something you want by spending it or giving it or keeping it. And some then, money is one cultural symbol that we use to show what we value. It is a means by which we show where our treasure is, who our treasure is. The use of money is an act of worship, either of Christ or of something else. The point is money is never just money. Money for us is where we find pleasure or where we grab significance or where we grab a life of security and safety and meaning and power and comfort and control. So if you want to know where your heart is, here's what Jesus is saying. Open up your checkbook, check your budget. You will see what you value. It doesn't matter what you say, articulate what you value, but you can actually have a a test, if you will, of your heart to see where it really lives in these areas. That's a big deal. That's why he talks about it all the time. The second reason why I think Jesus talks about money almost constantly is simply because you can't serve God and money. And he's inviting people to himself to follow him. And what he's saying is, if you're going to follow me, you can't love me and also love this. You've got to pick. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 6, verse 24, what we just read. He said, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and he'll despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. There are two kings that want to rule over your heart. Two kings that want to have control over you. Two kings that want to have the final say. One is king money and one is king Jesus. And what Jesus is saying is you have to actually decide which king you're going to follow. You have to actually decide which one is going to have your affections and have your heart. John Calvin says it this way. He says, where riches hold the dominion of the heart, God has lost his authority. Now, what he doesn't mean is that God no longer has authority, but what he means is functionally speaking, it doesn't matter how many times you claim that you're a follower of Jesus and that he has all the authority in your life. If riches hold the dominion of your heart, functionally speaking, they have the authority over you. They have the authority. So what is it that Jesus wants to tell us about money? Because kind of right out of the gate, he's like, bang, 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 just shots fired when it comes to money and possessions. Already everything that he said rubs polar opposite the American dream that you and I have grown up to love and to know and to be enculturated by. So how do we wrestle with the claims of Jesus? What does he want us to do? Well, he's going to give us two things, two things that he wants to give us today. So look at Matthew 6, verse 19. Do not... Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust 
destroy and where thieves break in and steal. The first thing Jesus wants to give us today, no matter who you are, is the demand. And this is the, the, the demand do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Now, sometimes we read this as like a wise suggestion from a sage that we can take or leave, right? Like, well, he said that, but he, what he means is like, you know, here's one way to live. One way to live is to not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. But actually, that's not what he says. What he says is do not lay up for yourselves. This is actually an all-encompassing demand that he gives to his followers. So like if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, this is his demand to you. If you're thinking about following Jesus, you're wrestling with the claims of Christianity, this is his demand to you if you want to follow him. Is actually, if you come and follow me, he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on, e- on earth. Don't do it. Actually, don't at all. Don't ever do that. One commentator said it this way. He said, Quit collecting treasures for yourselves here on earth. Like, stop doing that. Quit doing that. Do not do that. Now, why is that? I I was like hit between the eyes wrestling with this passage that this isn't a kind suggestion from a sage that I can take or leave. This is a demand on my life that hit me like a ton of bricks. What do I do with that? Why is this? Is he just like anti-fun, anti-money, anti-pleasure? Like he doesn't want us to actually have anything nice. What is Jesus trying to to do here? Well, he actually is trying to teach us how to be really human, how to live in the kingdom of God with a life of real flourishing, not in what we might think is human flourishing. So let me just give you a few reasons why I think Jesus makes this demand on our lives. Why does he demand this? Well, here's the first reason. Our money and our possessions will ultimately be destroyed. So good morning. I'm so glad you came. Everything you own, all the stuff that you treasure and that you love and that you save and that you adore, from your bank account to your possessions to your cars to your house to your stuff to your clothes, all of it, all that you own will ultimately be destroyed. Uh, he, he mentions three corrosions, actually, and, 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 and these are brilliant, I think, that he does this. So the first he mentions is moth. Uh, now, you might not think of moths as like a big issue in our day and age, right? We've, you know, we've got mothballs, right? Too bad for you, first century, but now we've got mothballs, so we're okay. Um, but actually, what Jesus is saying here is he's using moths as this nature's corros- corrosive effects, right? Like, it doesn't matter what you own. At some point, nature's going to have its toll on it. Uh, I, I owned a, uh, a, a one of a sermon manuscript from Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Some of you don't know who Charles Spurgeon is. Uh, some of you don't care. For me, he's like my hero. He was a pastor in London in the, the late uh, turn of the century, 1800s, uh, coming into the uh, late 1800s. And amazing, amazing pastor. I had somebody bought me one of his sermon manuscripts that he had hand edited. And then a tornado came and blew away my house. And that was one of the things that I never saw again right? That was my moth, was a tornado. Nature's corrosion. It doesn't matter what you value, what you treasure, what you own, it will be destroyed at some point. Uh, If moths don't get it, then rust will. Rust is time's corrosion, right? Time just has a way of corroding everything. Everything moves from uh, kind of order into chaos naturally. The law of thermodynamics is true with your money and with your possessions, rust. And then the last one, if you're like, well, I'm going to find a way to protect it from those things. Well, then there's thieves. 
And this is humanity's corrosion. That there's, even within humanity, like, people do things to break your stuff, or they ruin your stuff, or they destroy your stuff. Some of you are like, yeah, it's Mother's Day. I've got kids. Trust me. I know about the, the thieves breaking in. It's called my children. And they just destroy everything, right? Now, so this is the first reason why Jesus says, don't, don't, don't lay up treasures on earth. It's ultimately going to be destroyed. Some of you are like, okay, okay, but at least I can enjoy it now before it's destroyed. Well, here's the second uh, thing I think we need to see is money and possessions cannot satisfy the human soul. This is why Jesus is giving us this demand. Money can't satisfy your soul. Uh, Think about this. 10, 15 years ago, you had an amount of money in your mind that you wanted to make. And you felt like, man, once I make that amount of money, I won't live paycheck to paycheck. We'll have a little bit more to go out on a date night and do whatever and, you know, kind of get on Amazon and buy what I want. Although 15 years ago, that wasn't in your brain. But you had these thoughts of like, if I could just make a certain amount of money. Well, for some of you now, 2019, you make that amount of money. Not all of you, but some of you do. And yet somehow you're still living paycheck to paycheck and you feel like you can't make it work and make it stretch, and you're just kind of, now you have a new dollar amount in your mind, and once I get here, I'll be okay. And I just want you to realize that that never, ever goes away. In fact, listen to these stats. 76% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. 76% live paycheck to paycheck. And then, this is even more shocking, 72% of Americans live with mounting consumer debt. So what we're doing is we're spending all that we earn, And then we spend a little bit more than what we earn and we're mounting in our consumer debt and yet we still aren't satisfied. We see things that we want. We we see stuff that will make us happy, so we think. And so we reach for it and we grab it and we get it, but it doesn't actually fulfill us. Uh, John D. Rockefeller was widely considered to be the wealthiest American of all time. He's the richest person in modern history. According to Forbes magazine, his net worth was the modern equivalent of $392 billion. $392 billion. Can you wrap your head around that? Do you think if you had $392 billion that you would have enough? Somebody asked him once, how much money is enough for you to be satisfied? And he famously responded, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. That's the cry of every human heart just a little bit more, just a little bit more. And what Jesus is saying is there's never going to be enough if that's where your treasure is. I love the words of Martin Luther. He says, see to it that greed does not take you in with a sweet suggestion and a lovely deception like this, that you intend to advance yourself or your children into a higher social position. By the way, he's saying like the American dream, don't do that. What do we do with that? And then he goes on. He says, the more you get, the more you will want. And you will always be aiming for something higher and better. No one is satisfied with his position in life. That's what Luther said. And I think this is the heart of what Jesus is teaching. The third reason why Jesus makes this demand is because more money and possessions does not equal a more flourishing life. Have you noticed Just because you have more, make more, doesn't mean that you truly are flourishing as a human. Uh, The Atlantic put out a fascinating article on, uh, uh, it was titled, A Treasury of Terribly Sad Stories of Lotto Winners. Uh, The the author, Jen Dole, basically collected dozens of true and really sad stories of people who had won the lottery, and she tracked what happened to their lives after they won. 
And uh, have you ever played the lottery game with your family? Like, if I won the lottery, I would blah, blah, blah. And you start, you know, I would obviously give to Frontline. And then, you know, and then I would do other things. And, right, have you ever played that game? Am I the only one? So, um, so he, he, listen to this. Listen to what happened to these people. Poverty, after spending all of the money on drugs and prostitutes. Poverty, after excessive gambling. The loss of lifelong friends. Being looked down on in the community for the winnings. Ending up in debt for failing to manage the money properly. A descent into crime and bankruptcy. Getting murdered. Committing suicide. And a host of other horrible things that I don't have time to mention. And she ends the article by basically saying, you don't want to win the lottery because you're actually more lucky if you don't than you are if you do. Because money doesn't make you happy. And it doesn't make you flourish. And it doesn't fix you. And it can't save you. It can't do that. So Jesus says, don't lay up treasures on earth. And then finally, uh, by the way, let me just, you know, I've quoted from John Piper and Martin Luther. So let me throw in Jim Carrey for you real quick. Uh, Jim Carrey says, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything that they ever dreamed of so that they can see that it's not the answer. Right? Maybe Jesus is on to something. Here's the fourth thing and final thing here. More money and possessions actually does often mean more anxiety about money and possessions. I was thinking about this. Uh, when my wife and I first got married, I was 21, she was 20. We were so wise beyond our years, right? And knew everything about life and marriage. And we lived in a small apartment. It was about 450 square feet. And that's some of like the size of some of your walk-in closets. And that was... That was our, our apartment, and we had everything we had was given to us or donated or whatever. I mean, we, we hardly had anything that we could point out and say, yeah, we bought that. We made nothing. We had hardly any money. And yet, I remember being so happy and so content, and even though we like, literally were pinching pennies just to survive, we, we had everything that we needed. It was amazing. Now, fast forward in life. I make a little bit more now. I have a, a newer, nicer house that we built about a year, a little over a year ago. I love... Uh, what God has provided for me. But can I be honest with you? It's actually a fight now for me to not be anxious about the stuff that I have. It's, it's a fight now for me to not be concerned about my possessions and my house staying nice or people messing it up or whatever. Like I actually have to, just because I have more doesn't mean that that struggle has gone away. Actually, it was easier when I had less. Now that I have more, the struggle is more. The anxiety is more. The more concerned you are with what you have, the more anxiety and discontentment you have with it. But the less you have, sometimes the more content you are. Sometimes the more free you are. Maybe Jesus is on to something. So he starts out his teaching by saying, do not lay up treasures on earth. Don't do it. Quit. So what do we do, Jesus? What do we do with money and with possessions. Well, here's what he says next. Look at this, Matthew 6, verse 20. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what he gives us, the first thing he gave us was a demand. Now he's going to give us a redirection. What do we do with our money and possessions? Well, he tells us, Lay up treasures for yourselves in heaven. Now, I get not all of you grew up in church. I did. And uh, even if you didn't grow up in church, that phrase, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, is a popular phrase. Like sometimes you would help someone be, you know, cleaning a toilet at, ch- at church after a Sunday service. And you're like, well, I don't really like doing this, but treasures in heaven. You know what I'm talking about? 
or I'm going to do some hidden kindness or some generous act that no one else sees because I'm laying up treasures in heaven. My mansion's going to be giant. And that's kind of the idea. Like I'm foregoing possessions now so that when I get to heaven one day, I can have all those great possessions and have a great big house and do all the things that I really wanted there. That's not what Jesus is talking about. That phrase, in heaven, uh, doesn't mean like if you forego money now, there's going to be a pile of gold when you get there. Your house will be giant. That phrase, in heaven, means where God is. It's the presence of God. It's the dwelling of God. It's where the reign and rule of God is. In heaven meant where God is. So what, what he's saying is lay up for yourselves treasures in God, in his will, in his reign, in his rule, in what he wants in life, in his kingdom. Put money, put possessions there because then it will have eternal significance. He's saying forego now by giving it away so that it actually can have an impact. In fact, how do you lay up treasures in heaven? I love this in Matthew 19. Jesus literally uses this phrase. Look at this in verse 21. Jesus said to the rich young ruler... Remember the story? If you would be perfect or whole or complete, go and sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. If you want to know how to lay up treasure in heaven, Jesus just said, if you give to the poor, you will have treasure in heaven. So how do you lay up treasure in heaven? You give your money and your possessions to those in need to those that are on the fringe, to those that are suffering, to the most vulnerable, to the weak. You take what you have, excess or not, and you give it away to those who need. By doing so, you are laying up treasure in heaven. Frederick Bruner said this. He says the most concrete, practical way to have treasure in heaven is to make the life move of economic divestment for the sake of investment in the poor. And my hope is that in some of you wrestling with the claims of Jesus, that you'll actually take him seriously and fight for economic divestment so that you can have long-term internal investment in the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, this is crazy. You might hear all of this and go, that's pie in the sky. Like, nobody could live that way. Nobody could actually treat money and possessions and just kind of give it up. Not true. This is exactly how the early church lived. One of the reasons why the early church grew historians think, Rodney Stark and a few others will point to a few things and they'll say one of the biggest reasons why the early church grew for the first 300 years in a Roman empire that was hostile to Christianity was because of their radical generosity towards the poor especially. Listen to Tim Keller. He says, the early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way. The pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. A pagan gave nobody their money practically gave everybody their body. And the Christians came along and gave practically nobody their body, and they gave practically everybody their money. They flipped it. They were giving away their stuff. Uh, There's a letter that a Roman emperor wrote to complain about the generosity of Christians. I love this. Uh, Emperor Julian, he was was known as Julius the Apostate, and uh, he was like a nephew, I think, to Constantine. But here's what he said complaining about Christians. He said, do we not observe how the benevolence of Christians to strangers has done the most to advance their cause? It is disgraceful that the Christians support not only their poor, but ours as well, while everyone is able to see that our own people lack aid from us. Christians take care of their own. 
but they don't just take care of their own. They take care of other people that aren't even their own. It's amazing. How do they become so generous? Because if you notice, like, you don't just come out of the womb naturally generous. I'm currently watching my 19-year-old, and my parenting for him uh, is, is him uh, grabbing other things that he doesn't own or belo- that doesn't belong to him, and then saying, mine, right? And me having to go, no, 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 ripping it out of his hands, and then he has, like, the most epic meltdown you've ever seen. And, and I look at that, I'm like, yeah, that's me. I just think that the whole world is mine, 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 mine. How do we become people who are generous? How did that happen? Well, here's how. The generosity of Jesus towards us. Here's the, the crazy thing. If you want to talk about poor and rich, the Bible will tell us that you and I were spiritually poor. What that means is we didn't have anything to offer God. We couldn't buy him off. We couldn't say, you know, forgive me and I'll give you this amount of money. Like we, we were spiritually bankrupt. And yet, God who had it all left heaven, the place of riches, and gave his life and everything, his own blood, so that you and I could be forgiven and adopted. He died on a cross for sinners so that he who is rich, by becoming poor, we could become spiritually rich. Then he rose from the dead and he's given us the Holy Spirit. He's given us forgiveness. He's given us adoption. He's given us a new identity and a new family and a new way to live. And he's just generously given all. And now he gives you money and possessions and houses and cars and stuff. Why? Because he's just a generous, loving God. God the Father loves to give good gifts. And when you receive the gift of Jesus, his only son, the greatest gift, so that a wretch could become his treasure, that changes the way that you live. It just changes the way that you live. So where do we go from here? Well, let me just give you a few things to kind of apply, I think, the teachings of Jesus here. Uh, Number one, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, I want to encourage you to take a step Just take a step towards radical generosity, specifically by growing in percentage giving. So you ask people, like, are you generous? I'm like, yeah, but what's the, like, what's the, how do we know? Well, you can look at your bank account, you can study your budget, and I think you'll see where your heart is. And what I want to encourage you to do is to actually take that seriously, look at your budget, look at your bank account, and ask yourself the question, what do I value? What do I treasure? What do I love? And if you aren't already, what I encourage you to do is to grow in percentage giving. A great place to start is 10%. You can give 10%. That's not by any means uh, the most generous. In fact, if you look at early Christians, that's like the bottom of the barrel generosity. Uh, even the Old Testament saints gave far more than 10%. They give around uh, 23.5%. So I want you to wrestle like, and grow in percentage giving. Set a percentage of your income, your gross income, and then give that, right? When you give to the local church, what you're doing is you're funding uh, church planting, you're funding the service of the poor, you're funding people who are in need in our own backyard, people in our church, single moms that have issues, that have problems, that need help, having bills paid, like that's what you're doing when you give. And then above and beyond that, give to a missionary, give to a good cause, give to a good nonprofit, but set a percentage and give that. And I would just challenge you, like, if you're not giving 10% and you're a follower of Jesus, uh, for some of you, that might be generous. But for the great majority of you, it's probably not. And so take a hard look at what you're giving and try to grow in generosity. The second thing I want to encourage you to do is to actually give more to others than you spend on yourself. Um, I remember when we first got married, we didn't have money to budget. Like, here's your fun money and here's my fun money, right? But now we do. 
right? So in my budget, I have a category. It says Andrew's fund money. Then I have a budget called Hillary's fund money. And it's pretty small, but you know, every month the idea is like, this is just our money to go do whatever we want to do with it. And, and recently what we've tried to do is actually put another category in there called blessing others. And we're trying to, whatever we would spend on ourselves, we're trying to double that and put it in the blessing others category. Not because I'm so godly and mature, but because money can have a hold on my heart. And I'm trying to fight that by giving money away. So that's not like, hey, look how godly I am. It's like, no, I'm actually somebody that's driven often by money and possessions. And so this is one of the ways that I can wage war against my own sin and follow Jesus here. So consider doing that. And then the third and final thing is if you're here and you're drowning in debt, follower of Jesus or not, doesn't matter. You need financial help. You can reach out to us and we will help you. We have people in our church that love this stuff. If you email hello at frontlinechurch.com, that'll go to directly to one of our pastors. We will read that email. We'll respond. We'll get you connected to somebody in our church that wants to help you get this stuff figured out. No shame, no judgment. No one's going to, they're not going to laugh or cry at the amount of credit card debt or consumer debt that you have. They will help you make a plan. They will help you make a plan so you can reach out. All right, let me close like this. There's a, there's a story in a book by Randy Alcorn, The Treasure Principle, about two very different graves in Egypt. Two very, very different graves. The first grave is of William Borden. William Borden was a Yale graduate, uh, early 1900s. He was an heir to phenomenal amounts of wealth. Inherited tons of money. And he got a passion to bring the gospel to Muslims in Egypt. So literally, driven by this passion, he gave away hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars to missions so that Muslims in Egypt could hear and know Jesus, hear about and know Jesus. Now, think about that amount of money in that culture in the early 1900s. I mean, that is a significant amount of money. People were calling him crazy because he was literally like blowing the inheritance on missions. He eventually moved to Cairo, and after only four months of zealous ministry there, he contracted spinal meningitis, and he died at 25 years old. And the epitaph on Borden's grave tells of his love and a sacrifice for the kingdom of God, the Muslim people. But here's how the inscription ends. It ends with this phrase, Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. What an amazing thing to have said about you. So that's his grave. Now, if you travel just a couple miles away, there's a museum. It's the Egyptian National Museum. And the King Tut exhibit is there. And King Tut is currently there. King Tut was only 17 when he died. And the Egyptian culture believed that when you died, your wealth could go with you into the afterlife. And so, as was common, he was buried with literally tons and tons of gold. Gold inside of the coffin, His coffin was made of gold. The tomb was made of gold that he was found in. Gold everywhere, possessions, stuff, just littered where he was buried. And yet, 3,000 years later, that treasure was still sitting there untouched when it was found in 1922. Now, Randy Alcorn says this as that gold sits in a museum. Tut's life was tragic because of an awful truth discovered too late. He couldn't take his treasures with him. William Borden's life was triumphant. Why? Because instead of leaving behind his treasures, he sent them on ahead. Everything we own is destined for estate sales, 
garage sales, thrift stores, landfills. Jesus is the only sober one in the room. And he is looking at us saying, if you want to follow me, I have the good life. And it's not in money. And it's not in stuff. Don't lay up treasures on earth. Lay up treasures in heaven. Do what I am calling you to do. Give away your stuff. Give away your money for the sake of the poor, for those who are in need. And you will have treasures in heaven.